This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got it! Away, McCann around third. Throw from the outfield is up the line. Inside the park home run. He gone. Whoa! <laughs> he leaps up and he makes a catch up against the wall. And he's gonna watch it fly. Strike three called. He got him on strikes. Welcome to The Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website. We are SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You can find us online at blessyouboys.com. You can find us on Twitter at blessyouboys. And you can find us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hookslide, along with my co-host, Rob Rojacki. Rob, I got to be honest, I really kind of don't want to do this show because every time we do a podcast, somebody else gets hurt. Well, no, they always do it like right before we record the podcast. It sucks. It's always in tandem with what we're doing is what yeah. I'm saying. And I don't like that. It was kind of cool in the off season when like they were making acquisitions and trades and signings and stuff, you know, in concert with the show. But now it's like every time we do something, somebody gets hurt and I kind of feel responsible for it. So maybe we just need the season to start. Okay. We could do that too. I was just going to try to shut the show down now, get it over with early, but that's fine. If you want to do the show, we can, um, we can do I that. Mean, it's either that or we watch election coverage tonight. So. Let's do a show. Yes. Okay. Yes. Let's. In fact, let's get this show started right now. Uh, on tap this week, bunting is stupid. We've got a legitimate catcher war on our hands. The Tigers have been bad at preventing runs in the seventh inning. Al Avila and Dave Dombrowski are still friends. Aww. Our listeners have questions as usual. MLB logos need to be ranked, and Goose Gossage is a stupid head. But before we get to all that, let's round the bases. The one guy you didn't want to get hurt just got hurt. We'll tell you all about that after the break. Fly ball here to center. Way back in center. Deep. Gone. Whoa. Straight away center to the camera well. Three run shot for Cabrera. As far as you'll see one hit. Here at Comerica Park, and the Tigers take a 3 0. All right, let's get the show kicked off in our Rounding the Bases segment. The one guy you didn't want to get hurt just got hurt. And y'all know who I'm talking about. That is uh, Victor Martinez. Of course, of course, it had to be Victor. We, we do this show, Rob, and people get hurt. It was Sanchez went down, and then Alex Wilson went down, and then Cameron Mabin went down. And lo and behold, in the middle of a game, Victor Martinez pulled up Gimpy on a base hit. I think he was running to first or rounding first. At first, it looked like it was maybe a knee issue. That's all they said is, oh, he's limping off the field, grabbing around the knee. And we all went, <laughs> thankfully, it's not. It's it's just a hamstring. So are we going to be okay? 
I mean, it's not much better because it's still... Well, did we even figure out if it was the right or the left? It's the left. It was whatever okay. leg he had the surgery on. Okay. Um. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously good that it's not the knee, but still, a gimpy Victor Martinez does not make for a very encouraging spring training. Um. I guess the one thing that I am kind of you know, and not necessarily happy about, but the one thing that I did like to see was that Brad Oxman was joking about it after the game. I think he said something along the lines of it won't affect Martinez's stolen base numbers. <laughs> uh, so, so that's a good thing that it seems like it's not very serious. He's, uh, you know, the beat writers are talking about this in terms of days as opposed to weeks. Uh, so we may be, we may even see Martinez back in action by the time we record this podcast again sometime next week. Well, you would know better than I would being into physical therapy and, and all that. Tell me a little bit about how the structure works, because I'm not even sure where the hamstring is. Is it in any way connected to the knee, any way related to this surgery that he had? I mean, it's sort of related to the surgery. The hamstring is a big group of muscles in the back of your thigh. Um, so what he did was he probably just pulled a muscle there. It's not necessarily going to affect his swing too much. Um, you know, maybe he's a little bit, a little bit gimpy with a swing, but... Uh, it's definitely not going to affect him in the same way that it did last year. Uh, you know, we've seen Miguel Cabrera have some of these types of injuries in the past where, you know, it doesn't really impact his swing very much, but it just may affect him running the bases and make him a little bit slower than usual. And in Victor Martinez's case, he's already pretty damn slow, so it doesn't really make a ma- make much of a difference. Um, so as long as that knee is healthy and, you know, he's able to kind of recover from this quick little, quick little hamstring strain that he has, uh, I think he'll be okay. I was encouraged to see at least that they classified it as a mild hamstring strain. So it doesn't sound like it's anything major. Again, you were saying they're talking in terms of days, not weeks. That's good. Uh, If I came to you as a patient with a mild hamstring strain, what would you prescribe for rehabbing it? I'd probably just tell you to walk it off. Just walk it off. No, I mean, there'd be a little bit of stretching involved, a little bit of strengthening involved, uh, but nothing to serious at all a lot of the the most common question that i get from a lot of these people you know any sort of hamstring strain or really any sort of muscle strain is should i get an x-ray should i get an mri and my answer is no just sit down and we'll stretch it out a little bit Hmm. so So it definitely doesn't seem very serious you know we'll see if he gets an mri on it um but you know in the normal population that would be completely unnecessary so everything sounds like it's probably okay. I mean, of course, the concern is that it is Victor Martinez, and he does have issues with that leg. This is sort of in the knee-ish area, but it's probably not a big deal. But okay, let's let's still play worst-case scenario, because you know what? Cameron Mabin got hit by a pitch, and people were saying, oh, no big deal. It's just a contusion. It's a bruise. And it turned out, no, he's actually fractured something. So worst-case scenario, they, they come back and say, oh, we did the MRI, and it turns out that, that he actually you know, broke something or whatever happens if victor martinez is out of commission for any length of time we'll even just say a month you know maybe two months how much does that play into i guess <laughs> what i'm getting to is how how critical is victor to the success of the tigers this year i mean i think he's as critical as just about anyone on the roster not named miguel cabrera you know we saw what happened with the tigers offense when he wasn't clicking on all cylinders in 2015 uh, you know, they were still a pretty good offense, but not necessarily the type of, you know, offensive dynamo that they could be with him in the lineup, um, especially if the Tigers insist on kind of still slotting him into that number four spot and giving him all those key 
uh, plate appearances in between Miguel Cabrera and J.D. Martinez. They need Victor to be productive. They don't necessarily need the power that he put on display in 2014, but if you get a guy, you know, something along the lines of what he did in 2011 or 2013, where he's hitting for a high average, he's getting on base, you know, he's hitting a fair number of doubles and driving in plenty of runs, that's really what they need. They just need someone to kind of keep the line moving in the middle of that lineup. So even if he turns into, remember how we called Maglio Ordonia Singlio? Yes, for a while, yes. even if he turns into that, that's still just a key, you know, a, a key, such a key spot in the lineup that they need him to, you know, produce in some way. So, you know, worst case scenario, I think honestly, the worst case scenario would be like last year where he's still in the lineup every day, but producing at a, you know, a below replacement level and he's not really doing much. You know, if he's out of commission and he's on the disabled list, you call someone else up and, you know, maybe they're a little bit more productive. But, you know, to go through what he did again last year, I think would just really kind of be a death knell to this team. It's a it's a kind of a philosophical question. I was having this argument online on Twitter with Comerica Eric, formerly Phil Coke's brain, uh, because I think he had made the statement that um it was Victor Martinez that he singled out as saying he, this is the the, the linchpin basically the the hinge on which the the success of the season swings and I kind of disagreed with it and said yeah you want all the players to be healthy and contributing and Victor Martinez is a big part of that but if you had to narrow it down to you know one or two players that are just absolutely critical I still say if Victor's not part of this they can produce runs they can still score runs in other ways you've got other guys in the lineup especially now with the additional security blanket of Justin Upton you know you have ways to score runs but for me I think it's like for me, it would be Anibal Sanchez. Like, if he's not in the rotation and contributing, I think that's more devastating to the overall, you know, playability of the team than, than Victor Martinez. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, just because, you know, the your starter is so important every fifth day. You know, uh, if he's not performing well, then your team's probably going to lose. If, he, if Sanchez goes out and gives up five or six runs, odds are the Tigers are going to lose that game. If Victor goes 0 for 4, you know, how many games over the last few years has he gone 0 for 4 or 1 for 4 with a single, you know, a relatively subpar outing, and the Tigers still win? Um, You know, it's, I mean, it's basic probability, really. 1 in 5 is, you know, a more, a a higher percentage than 1 in 9. You know, and even if Victor does start to struggle, I think Brad Ausmus will be a little bit quicker to kind of shuffle the lineup this year given on how he performed last year, so we may not even see him in that critical number four spot for quite as long if he does struggle. And then, again, this is more kind of an if than a when, which is, which is a good thing. Yes, knock on wood, knock on any available wood nearby. The question, I guess, then would be if, for some reason, he did have to go on the disabled list, and I'm still knocking on the wood, who would replace Victor Martinez in the lineup? Who's, who would you see being the immediate, well, he's gonna, this guy's going to slot right in? Honestly, at this point, I think you've got to call up Steven Moya, as ridiculous as that sounds. You know, he's having a monster spring. Maybe some of these swing changes or, you know, his change approach at the plate is actually taking place. Uh, you know, you can kind of use it as a, as a bit of a sink or swim type situation for him. If he starts hitting, uh, then you figure out that happy little problem when it, when it occurs. But uh, I, I just don't think anyone else really provides the same kind of offensive upside, especially if you're going to not even you know, really trouble him with playing in the field during those days. You can kind of just let him focusing in on the hitting. I think that'd be, you know, it, it, I, I struggle to find anyone else in the system that I would rather have in that spot. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say Moya would be probably the most entertaining Guy to slot in at that, just say go ahead and DH and, you know, bat forth and do your thing. That too. Good God. You see how far he hits the ball? Yes. Well, I mean, 
you lose track of the ball very quickly when he hits it. It's just, I think he hit it. I think there was a ball at some point in existence that's not in existence anymore. Have you been up to that area in Comerica Park, though, like New Amsterdam, the 416, like, little area with, like, couches yeah, and yeah. bonfires and stuff? Yeah, those people would need to wear helmets or something. <laughs> Extend the netting all the way up to the to the New Hampshire's yep. 416. That's a good idea. Um, but as entertaining as Moya might be, I would think maybe a more realistic uh, you know, replacement. Well, and that's gets to another issue, I guess. But I was going to say Tyler Collins, uh, just because again he's got that left-handed bat. He does have some power. Uh, he's maybe a little more reliable swinging the bat than Stephen Moya. But that gets into the whole issue of whether or not he's going to be tied up already in the lineup, trying to help replace uh, st- uh, not Stephen Moya, but Cameron Mabin. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Collins could be a decent replacement. He's he's just not very flashy. It doesn't make for, you know, one, a very entertaining podcast, and two, just for, you know, kind of what you're thinking about with, you know, when you're fantasizing about a 25-man roster in March and, you know, what it could be and what this team is going to produce. You know, Tyler Collins is just kind of meh. So, you know, um, if anything, you know, one guy that could maybe potentially slot into that DH role is Jared Saltalamakia, especially on days that James McCann is catching. Um, one thing that it does is it allows the Tigers to bring Brian Holiday up north and, you know, figure out a little, it gives them a little bit more time to figure out whether they want to trade him. It seems like they're very, uh, they definitely want to hold on to him for as long as they can. Um, and, you know, maybe another week or two of that would, would be helpful for, for them. And Saltalamakia, you know, we've noticed that. Honestly, of the guys we've mentioned, he's probably the best bet to produce against right-handed pitching right now. So flashy or just meh, either way, it's none of this probably matters because I have a pretty good feeling that Victor Martinez is not really going to miss a whole lot of time. And uh, going back to what you said earlier, I would not be surprised if by the next time we record a podcast, he's already back in the lineup and doing his thing. But, you know, you kind of got to cover all the angles because it's still spring training season and we've got really no other <laughs> actual baseball to talk about right now next issue on the table uh brandon uh, wrote wrote a piece for the site just recently talking about the fact that brad osmus has come out and said that he wants anthony ghost to lay down a bunt at least one bunt in every single game i think going you know forward from here to the end of, of spring training he really wants uh ghost to work on the bunting thing this is you know creates a little bit of a ripple in the Tigers fan base, depending on where you sit on the whole bunting issue. Is it stupid? Is it not? When is it not? Is this a thing that Ghost should really be working on, or should he be spending those uh, at-bats working on getting better hitting? Well, at first I read that as just every game, period, full stop, and I thought that he meant like the regular season two. And I was, yeah, I was not happy about reading that quote. Uh, But then I realized... Then I realized that that? why would you give away the strategy and just like tell everybody like I don't know. I mean, I only kind of glanced at it. I was busy doing something else at the time. Um, But anyway, as far as, you know, Osmus's kind of goal in spring training for having ghost work on this, um, you know, I don't really care much. I mean, does is, you know, let's say he gets what maybe that's maybe 20 at bats from here to the rest of the spring, probably not even that, probably like 10 to 15 at-bats that he's working on laying down a bunt as opposed to um, just swinging away. And I don't necessarily think that that's going to make a huge difference for him in terms of swinging away. I think that, you know, getting those, you know, reps in against live pitching for, you know, booking a ball as, you know, old and tired as that strategy really kind of is in general, I mean... I guess I'd find it hard to get riled up about it. 
it just it really kind of triggers more of the issue of where you stand on bunting in, in, in particular it's uh, as a as a strategy i guess because we all know the numbers what they say you know in terms of run expectancy a runner at first and nobody out uh, actually has a higher run expectancy for the inning than a runner at second now with one out which is the situation you're in after a bunt you've given up an out uh so you actually tend to score fewer runs that way so it does kind of rankle me a little bit in that respect like yeah why waste your time with this stupid bunting thing but the other part of it is i know sometimes you do need to be able to get that bunt down uh even earl weaver who hated the bunt said there's times when you lay down the bunt and that is when you're ready to score just one run for the inning and there's times when you need to do that if you're you know in extra innings or if you're in the ninth and you're tied or you're down by one you need just that one run there's times when you want to do it and i guess if that's the case then yeah you want a guy like ghost to not be completely you know uh, helpless at the plate, I guess, not knowing what he's doing, not able to lay down that bunt. And he's he's fast. He could do this for a hit, couldn't he? Yeah, he could definitely do it for a hit. Uh, and I hope that Brad Osmus is more kind of challenging him to not only work on the bunting itself, but also to better recognize the situations in which that would be a good idea for him to kind of lay down a bunt for a hit. You know, maybe a third baseman is playing back for whatever reason, or maybe the first baseman isn't that great at fielding or the pitcher isn't very fast at getting off the mound or something along those lines. I imagine there are a, you know, a number of different situations and, you know, probably 10 more that I haven't even noted that, you know, would warrant a bunt in that situation from a guy with Ghost's foot speed. Um, so I think recognizing those situations and kind of identifying when to lay down the bunt as opposed to when not to is just as important as the actual bunting itself. Um, as for a sacrifice bunt, I also think that it's going to be more important for Ghost to be able to do that this year because he's going to be hitting at the bottom of the lineup. You know, he may be hitting in front of Jose Iglesias or behind Jose Iglesias, whatever, and then, you know, getting one of those guys over to you know over to second base or over to third base for the top of the lineup in a key situation i think would be more important than you know if he was still the leadoff hitter this year and trying to bunt someone over uh as to getting to you know the number two or number three guy in the lineup i mean obviously it's still kind of the same situation but i think that the bunt is a little bit more warranted if you're the number eight or number nine hitter as opposed to the leadoff hitter I mean, you hope that's the case. You hope that the plan with Brad Ausmus right now is to have Ghost batting lower in the lineup than you know than higher up. He's just not a real big on-base guy. I know that was kind of a complaint we had last year is that he really should not have been getting all those at-bats that, you know, in the leadoff spot. Uh, and yeah, when it comes down to it, like I said, this is kind of a fundamental thing about baseball. You do need to bunt every once in a great, great, great while. And I keep going back to that incident. I think it was 2013 when Jim Leland wanted Torrey Hunter to lay down a bunt late in the game and they were trying to scratch out one run to tie the game or whatever the situation was. And, and Torrey Hunter can't bunt, doesn't know how. And he laid down like maybe two sacrifices in his entire career. And so you had this situation where a baseball player, a professional league, you know, major league baseball player could not lay down a bunt. And that was kind of an ugly situation to watch him up there trying, struggling, unable to do it. So yeah, if you feel like you, you might need to use this once in a while, then it's good to get have him get the reps in now, I, I guess. The real issue, and I think the thing that maybe got a little bit under people's skins a bit, is when Osmus added on to that by saying that he thought this could be a weapon, quote, especially against left-handed pitchers. Record scratch. Full record scratch. Stop the jukebox. Anthony Ghost shouldn't be uh, facing left-handed pitchers. No, he shouldn't, but it's going to happen at, uh, you know, at some point. I think that even you know the strictest platoon hitters, that comes to mind is uh, Los Angeles' Scott Van Slyke. Uh, they're going to face, you know, same hand and pitching at some point. 
Ghost is going to face a lefty no matter how hard they try to keep him away from one. And so, you know, if he can execute that against a left-handed pitcher and get that bunt down, you know, maybe he has a better chance of reaching base for a uh, better chance of reaching base in that situation than he does actually swinging away against a left-handed pitcher. Um, you know, may, there may be some point where, you know, Ghost's glove more important to the team than the actual at bat that he's in but if he can still get on base that's kind of a good thing so you know I, I don't think that he should be facing a left-handed starter pretty much at any point but at the same time you know th- those situations are going to happen and going back to Scott Van Slyke uh, a right-handed uh, kind of lefty matcher for the Dodgers he actually faced more right-handed pitchers than left-handed pitchers in 2015 so you know those situations happen guys are going to face same-handed pitching so he needs to be at least ready for it and if the bunting helps great it's an interesting philosophy i guess you could you can kind of figure out a way that this does make sense and again you don't want to be in the situation where you need to bunt but sometimes it happens you don't want to be in a situation where ghost is facing a lefty but sometimes it's going to happen and maybe if you put those two things together and say yes when he does face a lefty maybe his best bet is to lay down the bunt because he certainly can't hit lefties right now then maybe in the end it kind of makes sense you know i don't i don't really know so that's all it's kind of much ado about nothing but as we said it's still you know we're, we're not even to opening day yet so we're still I, th- uh, <laughs> I think it just kind of combined two of tiger fans like least favorite words in bunting and brad osmus <laughs> and it just you know automatically made people angry uh, you're talking about me specifically there, I'm sure, and that's absolutely true. The two I was trying to speak from a general sense. Generally speaking, Hookslide hates Brad Osmus and Bunting, and put them together, and that'll just uh, it's it's it'll get oh messy, real messy, get real angry. All right, that will do it for our rounding the bases segment. When we come back, we'll do the warming in the pen segment. The Tigers have been bad at the seventh inning. We will talk more about that right after the break. Sanchez looks in and gets the sign from Brian Pena. Pena setting up away. The 2-2. Swing! He got him on strikes! A new club record. 17 strikeouts by Anibal Sanchez. And he strikes out the side in the and welcome back into our Warming in the Pen segment. Rob, we're going to talk about the fact that the Tigers have been pretty bad at the seventh inning, at least in terms of preventing runs. But before we get uh, to that subject, let's talk just a little bit about this legitimate catcher war that's shaping up. Again, we talked in the last podcast and the podcast before that, Brian Holiday has not let up. He's still hitting. And I think I made the prediction last week that by the time we got to this podcast, it was going to be a non-issue. He was going to come back to earth, but um, he's still hitting. Making this maybe a little more difficult is the fact that so is Jared Saltalamaki. In fact, I think, didn't he just... No, he struck out three times today, didn't he? I have no idea. I can't remember. I want to say it was yesterday then. Maybe yesterday that he hit a home run or he hit a double or something. Didn't you uh, watch the game? Today's game? Yeah. Yes, I did. And you... But I... Yeah. <laughs> it's a spring training game. <laughs> so the way that I watch these games is I focus in very intently on the guys that I want to see. I watch Justin Verlander pitches four innings and then I kind of tune out. Yeah. So I, I think I was I was actually putting together a desk chair at some point during the game. So I may have missed a couple of at-bats. I know Saltalamaki has struck out multiple times today. Uh, where was I going with all of this? Um, so this this catcher war that's shaping up, is it still... Same as we said last week, it's it's not really going to... There's no chance of Holiday making the team. It's 
they're still going to try and trade him. They're going to try and sneak him through waivers. How is it going to, how is it all going to shake out? Well, you mentioned that, you know, Salto Lamakia hitting makes the decision a little bit tougher. I actually think it makes it a little bit easier for the Tigers. Uh, I think that Salto Lamakia entered tra- spring training with a huge lead over Holiday in terms of being able to make the roster. And the fact that Salto Lamakia is still hitting, you know, other than this one bad strikeout day or whatever, just makes for, you know, makes the decision kind of a no-brainer. Uh, I know Brian Holiday's had an excellent spring. Seems like he's, you know, really kind of made some decent swing changes, and they they may carry forward. You know, he may turn into a catcher with a little bit of, you know, uh, a little bit of decent pop. But as the kind of guy on the outside looking in, I don't necessarily think he's done enough to make the team. You know, if he suddenly turns into like a defensive wizard, that'd be one thing. But you know, he's still kind of an average catcher defensively. You know, he's a okay hitter who you know maybe hitting for a little bit more power now but i don't necessarily think he's going to be on the opening day roster unless you know he's an injury fill in for a little while for someone here's a question that i have because we talk about the situation with brian holiday and uh you know one of the one of the issues that comes up is yeah you can't try to sneak him through waivers because he will almost certainly get claimed off of waivers and won't be able to make it down to the minor leagues and so we talk about the you know potential of maybe trying to trade him. Can you explain to me for a second how that even works? Because I'm trying to envision this. I don't understand the, the legalities and the way the contract thing works. But if they're going to try and trade him, if, if I'm the other major league team and you're pitching Brian Holiday to me, I'm going to say no to the trade because I know that at some point you're going to just put him on the waiver wire anyway. Does that make sense? No. I mean, if a team agrees to a trade with Holiday, then they get Holiday. It's really kind of. T- Remember how we, um, how the Tigers were looking to. Oh, I'm kind of blanking this, huh? Um, a couple years ago, when they needed a shortstop, and they traded Jose Alvarez for Andrew Roman. I don't. I actually don't think that make, example makes any sense because I think Alvarez still had options left. But anyway, but I guess what so, I'm saying is, yeah, I could trade directly with you for Brian Holiday, or I could just say, you know what, I know you're going to have to put him on the waiver wire anyway, so I can probably get him for free without having to give anything up. I guess the the only real question there is like you know if it's a more of a contending team you know someone who had a good record last year I know the New York Mets were one team that said that they were maybe interested in acquiring a backup catcher you know if they don't think that Holiday's going to make it down to them on the waiver wire because it go by like reverse record order or worst, something like that worst teams get yeah, first like crack worst at team it. gets first crack at it so if they don't think Holiday's going to make it down to them then they could try to trade for him. Uh, okay, no, that makes sense. That I forgot about the whole. The and so there is a little bit order. of incentive for a team to, you know, actually pony something up for holiday. And then I think the Tigers would be, you know, somewhat willing to take that because uh, I think it's pretty clear at this point that he's not going to clear waivers. And you know, getting something for him would be better than losing him for nothing. Well, absolutely, absolutely. But I, like I said, I've forgotten about the rules about the reverse order. You know, in terms of the way the waiver wire works. So yeah, I guess you know, you could try to pitch him. But then again. If you're a contending team, is there any is there any team even out there that you can think of that would need a Brian Holiday that the Tigers could even do business with at this point? I have no idea. You I know, don't know. Maybe someone, maybe a catcher gets hurt in the next week or two, and a team needs a fill-in. Uh, we really have. I, I have no idea. I don't. You know. Um, you know there are. I can't even name some team starting catchers, let alone the backups. So it would be it would be tough to say who would be who in particular would be interested in him. But I know that there would be, you know, probably a fair number of teams that would put in a claim on him and then try to juggle their roster some other way. I know the Blue Jays in particular are kind of notorious for claiming, you know, pretty much everyone that goes on waivers and then trying to sneak them through waivers themselves. 
you know, to see if they can get, uh, you know, just kind of a freebie off the waiver wire. So, so I don't think that, you know, that he's going to clear. Um, but I also think it's interesting that what the Tigers have been doing with Holiday, you know, playing him at third base, playing him at left field throughout the spring. Uh, you know, obviously those reps are important for him. You know, maybe he's able to, you know, kind of fill fill in as a utility player for the Tigers. But I also think that kind of, uh, you know, improves his trade value, especially to National League teams. You know, the NL teams that are dipping into their bench a little bit more, they have an extra de- bench spot because they're not using a designated hitter. Uh, and so for a team that's looking for a pinch hitter that can play multiple positions, maybe you're looking a little bit closer at a guy like Holiday to kind of fill in that role. And so maybe the Tigers are, you know, trying to kind of bump his trade value up that way a little bit. So you're saying that by moving him up to third base, by playing him in left field, which he actually did, that was a thing that actually happened. Brian Holiday played in left field the other day. You're suggesting that perhaps instead of doing that to sort of make him ready for a utility role on the team, they could be trying to showcase his value for another team to entice a trade. Yes. Interesting theory. Interesting. Because the Tigers already have at least two utility men that I can think of in Andrew Romine and Mike Avilas, and they are stuck with Avilas. Somebody was just saying today they can't even uh they can't even trade Avilas right now without his consent until something like June. I think it was yeah, that's, was saying that's that. a pretty standard rule in that, you know, any free agent that signs with the team, I think they have to go six months before they're able to be traded. Right. Um, so it's not like they can just say, okay, you know what? We're going to keep Holiday as that catch-all utility guy. Sorry, see you later, Mike. He's, he's going to be there for a while. I mean, they could cut him. I guess. There's no they still have to pay that. him, right? Yeah. No. I don't suppose Mike Illich gives two farts about that. So No, but I don't think the Tigers would cut him either. I don't know. That'd be kind of a bad PR move, too. I mean, this is the guy that, you know, Cleveland famously told teams they weren't trading you know, they they told teams last trade deadline they weren't trading Avilas because his daughter was getting cancer treatment. Right. You, know, if you cut a guy a year after that, kind of looks bad. Uh, she's cancer free now, though. It's it's not the same story. It's it, that is good. We were very happy for. I believe her name is Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that I, hopefully that whole thing is a thing of the past now. You know, but I I, I don't know. So it's this is the internet. Someone would point it out. True. True. Somebody would uh, take take issue with it, I guess, but. Yeah. Uh, other things happening in spring training. Stephen Moya now leads the team in home runs. So does he get an award for that? Do we um, play? A, is there a theme song we should play or something? For he gets a free trip to Toledo. <laughs> All expenses paid. Free bus fare to Toledo. Thanks for the home runs, buddy. It's been real. Does how many does he have? With a big four? I think he had Five? four last we checked. Is he homer? Did he homer today? I don't know. No, he didn't homer today. His uh, last one came on Sunday, I think. So, and the, and it was off a lefty too. That's right. That's right. Wow, he's. I mean, he's making some some waves here. I'm I'm kind of impressed with the the performance that he's putting on, given how much I bagged on him last year for being practically you know worthless at the plate. He's actually he's taking some walks. He's being more selective with the pitches. He's like we said. He's ar- he's already leading the team in home runs. Uh, yay, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was funny that I read an article that he said he was trying to be more aggressive at the plate, which, you know, it's like, we don't want you to do that. Don't do that. <laughs> um, but you know what? He can call it what he, what he wants. It's working right now. I heard a stat today. I think it was Dan Dickerson was saying that uh, not just Stephen Moya leading the team in home runs, but the Tigers as a team right now are leading all the major league teams in spring training for home runs. I mean, they are just like cranking them out at an astonishing rate right now. And it's kind of funny because I'm not seeing a whole lot of other teams doing that. The ones that are you know playing against Detroit, at least. 
Well, we talked about this last week in that spring training results do predict regular season results. Absolutely, so they do. The Tigers, Tigers are, are totally going to win all 162 games and lead the league in home runs. Well, they might lose a couple of games. Brad Osmus will make a bad decision or two in the bullpen, and they'll, he'll blow at least three or four, I think. Anthony Ghost will bunt against the lefty That's and will right. <laughs> With the bases loaded and nobody out or some stupid thing. Uh, no, but it is good to see that they've got you know, the the power does not seem to be a problem right now. They're swinging the bats well enough that I think everyone's kind of getting in on it. Ian Kinsler is looking amazing right now. Uh, just very solid at the plate. He's hitting the ball hard like every time. He probably read my article that said he was declining. Did you so. read an article that said he was declining? I did, yeah. When? Why? I don't know. It was, a couple, it was a couple weeks ago. I used stats and stuff. <laughs> no, it was actually kind of an... Kind of an interesting article that I read on Fangraphs. Uh, I can't remember the the author of the of the post at the time, but he kind of broke down, you know, the stat cast data from all of the second. You know, who's doing this position by position last year uh, and looked, and you know, Kinsler was kind of one of the, you know, one of the low men in the American League as far as you know exit velocity and how hard he's hitting the ball. Um, I know that his pop up rate probably uh, plays into that a little bit, but I think even on line drives, he's a little bit below average. I just kind of posed it as, you know, is Ian Kinsler declining type thing. And, you know, some people took offense to that. I was actually kind of surprised that more people weren't angry about it. But, hey, you know, it was kind of early March, so maybe they just didn't care. Well, like you said, you used stats. So it's uh, it's unassailable at that point. If you if you put math against that, then people can't argue with it. That's proven fact. Well, that's why everyone argued with your Mike Pelfrey thing today. Because I didn't use stats. I used stats the first time I wrote that article you know, a very similar article months ago when they first signed him and figured this time we'll take a non, you know, just more of a narrative approach. I, I love that we got a Twins fan leave a comment that just said, LOL. <laughs> like, yeah, all right, that's cool. Way to, way to actually pay attention to what I was saying, which is that he's going to be better because he doesn't play for your stupid team anymore and your stupid infield defense. Yeah, uh, I was, I was, well, I was looking at that today and, you know, I was kind of going to almost kind of refute your claim there, but... No, I, I looked at, you know, the guy I was interested in particular was Brian Dozier, yeah. uh, twin second baseman. I thought he was a better defender than what the stats said. Uh, you know, he really kind of seemed like a, you know, almost a go glug caliber guy, but he was actually below average last year. So, you know, if you want to keep doing that, Brian, and stop hitting home runs against our bullpen, that'd be great. <laughs> It'd be awesome. I will never forgive Brian Dozier for what happened last year, and I'm not even going to get into it. So we'll just we'll, we'll dump that topic right now. Was that the worst? Was that the worst loss of the season last year? Easily, it was like that little, one. That one or the one in Cincinnati where they gave up ten runs in an inning. That was, I mean, like just by the numbers, that one was worse. But at that point, nobody cared because they'd already tanked and traded everybody. And so, so what? Yeah, but I had to write the recap for that game, and that sucked. No, that's bad. From a personal standpoint, that might be a worse game for you. But the the July game stung way more for me because that was still when you were talking like hey they're just behind the twins for the wild card if they can like do well this series then they can gain some ground and maybe we can actually be buyers at the deadline maybe hope is not lost and then that game happened it was like yeah this is we're done actually i think i wrote the road cap for both of those games you poor son of a bitch you new get... rule rob writes no more recaps That's, you gotta get out of the recap business man that's just awful right yeah, yeah. Step it up, step it up, Catherine. So I take, I take it you have not watched today's game then, because no, you worked, and now we're doing a podcast. So you are in for a treat because Justin Verlander looked amazing. Looked, yeah, great. I saw that. I saw that in the Slack channel and briefly on Twitter, and 
all that. It it was he looked like vintage Verlander, like he hadn't missed a beat from last year. He was spotting the fastball really, really well, getting guys to chase that pitch up and out of the zone. He was working, as <laughs> Craig Monroe, Monroe might say, he had all his pitches working today. He was working all quadrants of the strike zone. He was facing the Braves, though. That's true, but I mean, they even they have a couple decent hitters, right? What, did Freddie Freeman play? Yes, I want to say he did. Okay, well, he's like the only one now. Yeah, he, well, in theory, these are major league hitters that could potentially at least make contact with something. But he was, you know, he had that twelve six curveball going and fooling guys with that. He got swishers swinging out of his shoes. Uh, he the slider was breaking well. The changeup was devastating. It, it was really exciting. Makes me just like really, I'm salivating for the you know, the actual start of the season. And we can really watch Verlander kind of turn it on. He didn't really get up above, I think, 92, 93 miles per hour, but there's no reason to at this point. Even even better, honestly. If he's able to do that without right. the velocity, that's good. And K-Rod, that's the first time I've seen, actually got to see, you know, watch, as opposed to just listen on the radio, uh, K-Rod make a performance, and that change up, holy crap. I get it. Yeah, that, thing, that thing's ridiculous. That thing just disappears off the table, and mm-hmm. woo. There's some ugly swings. I was watching some of his Brewers footage from last year, and he gets some just ugly, ugly swings with that thing. I'm very encouraged. Uh, Very, very, very encouraged because that was kind of a question from last year. I looked at the data and said, yeah, he uses that pitch almost like half of the time, and he got great results with it last year, but it's one of those things where you think, okay, can you really be a one-pitch wonder? I mean, Mariano Rivera did it, but is K-Rod capable of just kind of surviving on that one pitch. It looked really good. It did. He had some ugly swings and misses. He got some weak ground balls out of it. So it, I'm feeling good about the bullpen. Um, anybody that you're still kind of worried about, and I'm not talking injuries, but just performances that you think, eh, okay, step it up quick. I mean, if we're looking down the line here, Blaine Hardy still hasn't really picked it up much in spring training, but again, he's kind of the number four, number five guy uh, on the list. And I know you said Sands injuries, but Alex Wilson, I think, still isn't back to throwing yet or isn't back to pitching. Uh, And I know that Brad Ausmus even uttered the words disabled list potentially with him today. Um, So, you know, those two spots in the bullpen are really kind of my, my biggest concern right now. Other than that, things are good. I'm a little worried about the bullpen just because, you know, you got guys like, like you said, Wilson might not even, if things don't turn around fast, I haven't seen him throw yet. Uh, I know he's doing like, you know, the 90 foot long toss and 120 foot, but he hasn't been in a game. He hasn't done any of that yet. So I'm, he's a question mark for me for the start of the season. Bruce Rondon is just not really looking super great. He pitched today and was kind of all over the place again. Not really feeling great about that option. So it's just starting to kind of get to that point of like, okay, after K-Rod and Lowe and Wilson, Hardy's not been looking super hot. Who's going to step in and, and kind of fill these spots? Nesbitt pitched today. He's eh, not, nothing really super special. They let Valdez pitch, and that dude just gets rocked every freaking time he goes out. I really hope they don't put him back on the roster. I've I've seen enough of Valdez, but... Just still, yeah, still feeling, feeling a little bit squeamish about the depth of the bullpen right now. Yeah, um, you know, honestly, I know that the Tigers are still kind of talking up this fifth starter battle between Daniel Norris and Shane Green. Mm-hmm. I think Green will slot into the bullpen if he doesn't win that job. Um, if, you know, for some reason Daniel Norris doesn't win that job, I think that he might even slot into the bullpen, especially if Blaine Hardy isn't necessarily pitching well to start the season. Uh, Norris may be a little bit more likely to go to Toledo than Green, but I think that Shane Green is 
pretty much almost assured himself a spot in the major leagues at this point. I don't see any real reason why they would why they would keep him down in the minors. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not complaining. Don't get me wrong. It's it's a good problem. It's, you know, I know at this time last year, even the year before, we would have been saying, I'm worried about the bullpen as a whole. I'm worried that we don't have a guy that can close games or a guy that can set up, you know, to the closer in the eighth inning. Uh, so the fact that we're sitting here saying, oh, depth, you know, I'm kind of worried about middle relief or, you know, what if you need to go to a guy in the sixth inning? That's that's OK. I think they can get that probably sorted out you know, a little bit faster. And it's, it's more of a timing issue. I'm sure Alex Wilson will get healthy and be back to pitching well. Um, but as long as we're on the subject of bullpens and bullpens being bad, the Tigers have been bad historically for the last two years at the seventh inning. Actually, just last year. Uh, I'll get to the last two-year bit in a second. Uh, we had a fan post on the site. It was very interesting, kind of showing that, uh, at least for last year, the the real problem with with the bullpen allowing runs was it's really in the seventh inning, not so much the eighth and the ninth. Although I'm sure they had problems there, but a lot of runs being given up in the seventh, particularly, and so it was kind of phrased that way as you know, f- framed I should say as as more kind of a, that's that's the bullpen part. It's that part of the bullpen that needs to be kind of built up. We did a follow up uh, piece today. Fielder's Choice did that kind of married this information with. You know, something that we, we were talking about, we saw in the in the Baseball Prospectus Annual, talked about how Brad Osmus actually led MLB in blown quality starts, uh, not only last year, but the year before that. And Fielder's Choice kind of broke this information down and said, yeah, the seventh inning may have been bad, but it turns out that it was actually the starters who did most of the pitching in the seventh inning, not really the bullpen. And as far as the bullpen goes, it wasn't necessarily that bad in the seventh. So... Does this really come down to the issue that Brad Osmus doesn't know when to pull his starters? He's leaving them in there too long. Yeah, I mean, it may be some of that. It may also just be that, you know, you get guys like Justin Verlander and Anibal Sanchez, two of the guys that Fielder's Choice kind of singled out as being pretty bad in the seventh inning, um, in that they aren't working as deep into games as they used to. Uh, I remember, you know, back in 2013, it seemed like Sanchez was working through the seventh inning almost every start he had, you know, just dominating hitters, you know, even getting into the eighth inning. Justin Verlander, same kind of thing. Uh, And then you get into 2014, and those guys, you know, Sanchez still pitched pretty well when healthy in 2014, but Verlander definitely struggled kind of all throughout the year. Uh, And Sanchez, it seemed like any time he got to the third time through the lineup, he really struggled. Mm -hmm. I know that we wrote a couple posts about, you know, how Sanchez really shouldn't be facing the lineup a third time through and should be kind of pulled after that fifth or, fifth or sixth inning. Um, so it's it's tough to pin it all on Osmus. I'm sure that he deserves some of the blame here. But I think that, you know, having kind of a, a veteran-laden rotation combined with, you know, a real kind of shitty bullpen, to be honest, uh, just makes for, you know, a tough decision in there and to leave, you know, to leave Justin Verlander in, in that spot, even after 100 pitchers or so, you can't really fault him too much for that. Um, you know, and the, num- the numbers kind of started to hint that a little bit more as the season went on. But still, it, it's, it puts him in a tough place. But, you know, we'll see. I, I, I'm interested to see if he gets more aggressive this year with a deeper bullpen. You know, with Justin Alex Wilson ready to to f- slot into that role in the sixth and seventh inning. Is Osmus more aggressive and pulling a starter? Or is he kind of fall back into the same pattern and leaving those guys in too long? I would predict that uh, going into 2016, if he's got Justin Wilson and Mark Lowe and K-Rod lined up 7-8-9, although he did say he was going to use Lowe and Wilson kind of in tandem as setup men, so I'm not sure who he's thinking of for the for the seventh inning. Um, but I would imagine that he's talked all along about how much he just desperately needs to have 
three guys that he can automatically push the buttons and go seven, eight, nine, and I have to think about it. I think if he gets that, I think you'll see a lot of these starters, they'll, they'll not be going as deep into games. I think he'll get to the seventh inning and say, okay, time for the bullpen. I think the complaint this year is going to be he didn't let the starters go long enough. And it'll be the opposite problem of, you know, come on, Verlander was having a great game. Why did you pull him? Well, because I can, because I have Justin Wilson that can come in, or I've got Mark Lowe that can come in. Well, I don't think Verlander is going to be the guy that gets pulled so much, especially with him being the ace of the staff now. I think Osmus will really continue to rely on him. And, you know, if he looks as good in the regular season as he did today, it seems like, you know, they'll be fine. I think that you're looking at guys like Mike Pelfrey, who will be pulled earlier. Uh, you know, maybe even Jordan Zimmerman, definitely Anibal Sanchez. I think that they've mentioned kind of as a more of a six inning guy now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Daniel Norris, guys like that. Basically, the other four guys in the rotation, I think, will be the ones more likely to be pulled. Uh, you know, with Verlander and probably Zimmerman kind of looking to really to shoulder that load, getting in through the seventh inning whenever they can. And it makes so much more sense with those guys because, again, you like guys like Mike Pelfrey, I'm expecting good things out of him, but I really don't think he should go much past the sixth inning. Uh, Zimmerman might be a little bit different. He could be kind of on the edge. But like you said, Sanchez, he doesn't do as well once he gets to that third time through the, you know, through the batting order. So it's just it's kind of cool that the pieces all fit right now. You have pitchers that starting pitchers that can be really good through six. And then you also have some good bullpen pieces that can actually lock things down, go seven, eight, nine. Uh, Dan Dickerson uses the term uh, he when he was talking to us. I like the term shortening games. You're shortening these games by having a bullpen that can lock it down starting in the seventh inning. So, yeah, we, we can look at this problem and say Osmus, you know, led the majors in blown quality starts for two years in a row. And that is kind of curious to me. I looked back at the Leland years, 2011, 2012, 2013. The Tigers only had like three and four percent blown quality starts under him. And suddenly it skyrockets to 10 percent blown quality starts in 2014 and then you know 14% in 2015 it is a little bit of a weird drop off after Leland's gone and Osmus takes over but I think you were pointing out earlier that could just as easily coincide with the fact that hey 2014 was when Justin Verlander in particular kind of fell off the table did you did did you just defend Brad Osmus no uh, it's still a large gap and I'm not saying <laughs> screw you man I'm just just wondering <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think it's interesting the kind of the the gap between Leland and Osmus. And one thing that I kind of thought of with this is, uh, was Osmus more likely to pull his starter in the middle of the inning, or was Leland more likely to pull his starter in the middle of an inning? Um, and you know, I think the the bullpen in 2015 in particular had a real trouble with you know inherited runners. I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Alex Wilson or or someone someone that we you know thought was pretty good allowed a lot of inherited runners to score, but then his ERA was very low because he didn't allow any of his own runners to score. Right? Maybe it was Al Albuquerque. I can't remember. Um, and so maybe that that's part of the reason why that's happening. I know that Fielder's Choice kind of tried to mitigate for that by using OPS against right for his stat as opposed to you know earned runs or whatnot but you know maybe that still kind of plays a role and fitters into some of these numbers here yeah it was alex wilson i remember being surprised by that stat the number of uh, inherited runners scored uh, and then scored percent i guess i asked percent was always kind of surprising to me because he was one of the guys that was actually good out of the bullpen and consistently performed well and yet we look at that number and say wow he um let an awful lot of runners score but the problem was he also 
had like one of the highest number of inherited runners total of anybody on the team. There were a couple guys. He was right near the top. And so it's like, yeah, you, you give him enough chances. He's going to have a higher percentage of scored, you know, scored runners. But um, anyway, to kind of put a, a bow on this whole discussion, I just I, I'm looking forward to seeing how this shakes out in 2016, because like I said, I think you've got pitchers that kind of fit the mold a little bit better that should be kind of cut off at the sixth inning. And it's more it's easier to go ahead and pull them in the sixth. You've got a bullpen that can, I think, perform 7th, 8th, and ninth, And hopefully, to your point, if Osmus is smart enough to recognize this, he'll start giving those relievers clean innings and won't be saying, you know, middle of the 7th, now you come in with a runner at 2nd and 3rd and try and get out of the jam. Play it smart, and, and it should be a much easier year. We'll, we'll, we will consume far fewer Tums and Acids this year, I think. And I think that it may keep the starters fresher, too. You know, if yes. you get a guy like Sanchez only throwing about 100 pitches through six innings every start as opposed to trying to push it past that, get to 110, 115. You know, maybe this team's looking a little bit, you know, some of these starters are looking a little bit fresher. Uh, you know, the, I think the bullpen depth is still a concern because, you know, to be able to go seven, eight, nine with guys, you need more like four or five relievers right. to be able to capably do that, not just three. Uh, and the Tigers are looking kind of shaky at four and five right now problems but uh different kinds of problems than we've dealt with in the past so uh, i'll take that for what it's worth and look at the bright side and uh i i I refuse to start worrying about stuff until we actually start playing baseball it's it's not even the start of opening day yet it's this is the time for optimism and just homerism so go tigers all the way all right that'll wrap it up for this segment when we come back from the break we'll go high and tight al avila and dave dombrowski are still on good terms as far as we know We'll talk about that after the break. 3-2 pitch. Swinging a line drive left center field. Jackson on the run. He'll make the catch in left center. Max Scherzer up pump of the fist as he comes off the mound. The bases are loaded with nobody out. He strikes out two and gets Kiasco on the line. And welcome back from the break. We're ready for the high and tight segment. Rob, let's talk a little bit about this article that showed up in USA Today just recently, written by Bob Nightingale, talking about the whole situation between Dave Dombrowski and Al Avila and the whole thing that went down in August of last year when uh, Mike Illich let Dave Dombrowski go. I'm still not even sure if you can use the word fired. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, but he talked a little bit about some of the awkwardness that, that kind of went on, the fact that Al Avila got the phone call several days before Illich informed Dombrowski that he was being let go. And the fact that they're still, you know, kind of on good terms, I guess. I mean, they're probably not sipping lattes together and, you know, exchanging trade secrets or anything like that. But it's it's nice to know that after working together for all that time, you know, they can still be friends, kind of. Well, I think it'd be tough for Dombrowski to blame Avila for what happened. Uh, you know, it seems like he kind of understands that this was more, you know, a decision from top down and that Avila didn't really have much of a choice. And, you know, it's tough to ask the guy to, you know, throw away his dream job for, you know, I guess just kind of friend, per, you know, for his friend. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I thought it was just kind of a weird premise for the article is saying, you know, oh, great, they're still friends. Uh, and I know a lot of people were kind of, you kind of had the similar attitude with my headline today uh, with our with our links post about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that it was uh, you know, just kind of interesting, you know, both hearing about how exactly Avila heard. I think he was at, what, a car dealership? <laughs> yes. He was at a car dealership supposedly getting a new lease when the Illich call came in. And uh, you and I both know that's not at all what was happening. He was at the car dealership because he had 
dead bodies in the trunk and needed them disposed of, and the dealership is a front for that. Yeah, probably. Probably, you know, a couple of, a couple of our writers that have disappeared. I think those guys <laughs> were the ones in the trunk. Goodness. Anyone who wrote anything bad about the team. There was some really bizarre stuff, I think, in this uh, in this story that, that Nightingale did. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me, um, I'm kind of scanning it right now, but I I won't I won't find it, but I'll recall. Um, the fact that after Dombrowski was gone, one of the first things that Alavila did was promote a bunch of the guys that were already working under him. And we saw that. We saw, like, wow, why did everybody got a, got a raise and moved up the corporate ladder. And the angle that Nightingale was taking was saying it was smart for Avila to do that because he basically kind of ensured loyalty from these people that had already worked for the Tigers organization so that none of them defected to Boston when Dave Dombrowski went there. And I thought, well, that's, that's a really interesting take on that. I mean, it's tough to say, you know, we don't really know. It's very tough to isolate a lot of these guys. I know that in particular, a lot of people like to blame David Chad. I don't know his new title now, um, but David Chad, who was kind of the director of scouting or amateur scouting or something along mm-hmm. those lines um, for, the, you know, the Tigers kind of lackluster drafts. But there are so many moving parts in this and that everything that goes into it that it's tough to blame him you know, it's specifically for what the Tigers have been doing. You know, maybe this was Dombrowski's focus to, you know, only draft college relievers or, or whatever. So, you know, we, we may see a little bit of a different approach this year. Um, and so I, I think it's interesting that Avila did kind of work to promote a lot of these people. Uh, but the question is, was that to make sure that they didn't leave for Boston? Or was that just kind of what happened, that, you know, Avila moved up, so a bunch of other people needed to move up to kind of fill those roles too? So... I think I, I don't necessarily know that, you know, keeping them in Detroit was the primary motivation. Um, you know, maybe some of these guys may have been hired away by by Dombrowski. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't seem like there were too many people that lost their jobs in Boston when Dombrowski came in either. So it's tough to say. Yeah, I just thought it was kind of a new take on it because I hadn't considered that that might even factor into it at all. So maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It's an interesting thought to to consider. I don't know how this works in the baseball world. You know, if a GM goes somewhere, how often does, you know, the guys under him follow him over? It happened with with, uh, Alavila, though, right? I mean, they were both working for, uh, it was the Marlins, right? Yeah. Uh, And I thought it was interesting that, well, I thought it was interesting that Avila, you know, his kind of first quote was, you know, I thought I was getting fired too. Mm -hmm, We, mm -hmm. you know, we we didn't have any idea or whatnot. Um, or no, it was Alex Avila that said he thought his dad was getting fired too. Um, and so, you know, kind of having that swing of emotions for one minute, thinking your dad's lost his job, and the next minute realizing, oh, he's the one in charge now. And then uh, realizing that, was, that, you're, you know, that you're not coming back. Yeah, and then that. Uh, <laughs> the other quote about um, Avila, Al Avila saying how awkward it was that his entire family was wearing White Sox gear at Thanksgiving, I thought was <laughs> was kind of funny. And that was one of the things that we had, we debated earlier in yes. the Yes. Like, what is the Avila Thanksgiving, the Avila Christmas and other family gatherings going to be like? Apparently now we know. Oh, and I meant to tell you this too. Goodness, we're, it was Sunday. Um, yeah, it was, it was on Sunday. There was a White Sox game on. The Tigers game had just ended and I still wanted to listen to baseball. And that was like one of the games that was still going. So I flipped on the, you know, the White Sox spring training game and their, their radio uh, broadcast feed. And they got to talking about Alex Avila, and they actually said uh, the GM, I think it's, uh, that's Han, right, Rick Han? Uh, yeah. <laughs> apparently called Alex 
I don't know if it was the phone call to offer him the position. I think it might have been maybe after he had offered him the position or the contract. But he he said he called Alex Avila and wanted to get some information from him about like some other players. Uh, I think even the Tigers organization, they were like kind of scouting a little bit, you know, kind of thing. And he said to Alex, he said, where are you right now? And he said, I'm at home with my parents. Like, you know, he's like, oh, can you um, can you go in the other room and like go have this conversation? (laughs) this stuff actually happened. We were speculating about it and joking about it. And this is actually what went down. I I enjoyed that story very, very much. Uh, Going back to this article, though, uh, some interesting notes that came out of this, just some things that I think kind of cement thoughts that we've had about what Al Avila is doing. Uh, I love this quote. Al Avila said, when I took this job, I said to Mr. Illich, you can't be spending money like this forever. You can't keep spending $200 million on the payroll and cutting back here and there. There are things that I need. And he was referring to, I think, building up the analytics department, building up the scouting department. He's certainly done those things. But boy, that's a... Um, you talk about, you know, we speculate that, yeah, Alavila has a different kind of philosophy than Dombrowski did. It's, it's right there now in black and white. Him saying, hey, we need to kind of curtail the way we're spending money on payroll right now uh, and i think that the most encouraging thing out of that isn't so much that you know avila is saying these things and trying to get mr illich to agree to these things but also that they were still able to go out and spend you know 200 on million on free agents this off season mm-hmm. that they realize that now they need to spend but you know also have the building blocks in place so that you know in the future they don't necessarily need to throw out all these big money contracts so it's kind of merging the uh you know the present and future into make in making sure that this team is competitive both in the short and long term. It's just good to know that the GM has this kind of view already, you know, that he's looking at the future and saying, no, if you spend and spend and spend, eventually that dries up. Eventually it doesn't work anymore. So, you know, telling the boss, man, the guy who writes the checks, hey, we don't have to keep doing this. Let me show you a different way. Let's beef up these other areas. Here's a quote. I want your comment on this because we started to discuss this last night. Didn't get very far into it, but, uh, says the Tigers are going to build an academy in the Dominican Republic and they will pursue all the top dogs in the international market and won't be afraid to exceed the bonus limit. Now, you were starting to say last night that uh, apparently they already had an academy that I I wasn't aware of that, but that was what in in Venezuela? They have one in Venezuela. And I looked back at that. I know that we had said last night, uh, you know, something different, but the Tigers are not going to be closing that academy in Venezuela. Uh, What had happened is that the, MLB or, or someone, you know, some affiliate of that is shutting down the Venezuelan Summer League uh, because uh, I think of political you know, issues or, or something along those lines. Um, but they may be, you know, expanding the Dominican Summer League where a lot of, you know, these international prospects play. Um, and so I don't necessarily know what kind of ramifications that has. You know, maybe the Tigers will create a second team there or something along those lines. Um, but the fact that the Tigers are basically starting up another academy in one of these, um, you know, one of these countries, it seems like they're going to, you know, do a little bit more on the international market. Um, and the the part about, you know, pursuing the top dogs in, in international free agency is really kind of, you know, encouraging to me. I think the Tigers, the, the most they've ever spent on an international free agent is 600000 and a guy named Julio Martinez, not not to be confused with J.D. Martinez. Hmm. Um, and you get teams like the Rays and the Royals and these other small market teams that are spending a million or two million dollars on a lot of international prospects. Uh, I know that Patrick O'Kennedy, I, I think it was, wrote an article on the site recently about you know the Tigers and their ability, the, their uh, kind of the position they're in right now, that if they go out and spend a lot 
an international free agent market where you know they, they exceed the bonus pool limits and there are a lot of you know kind of harsh penalties that come along with that and both in terms of you know dollars that they need to you know pay the MLB as well as you know the future limits on spending but if they go out and kind of blow past that limit now they're able to restock the farm system with you know maybe two three even four years of four years worth of talent hmm. um, and I think one of the biggest points that came out of that is that because other teams have already kind of blown past these limits you have, I think, up to 10 teams that can't even spend more than $300,000 on a single prospect, which basically takes, you know, a third of baseball out of the running for a lot of these top players. Uh, so it really kind of limits the market, and the Tigers could do some serious damage there and, you know, kind of restock the farm system and hopefully even maybe avoid a little bit of a rebuild. And that's, you know, from what I'm reading here, that certainly seems to be the route that they intend to go. You get this quote from Al Avila saying, we haven't really spent money on player development we really haven't spent money internationally. We've been in check, really, in everything we do, based on the fact that we've been spending so much at the big league level. You're going to see that turn a little bit as we move into future years. So, yeah, it sounds like the plan is to maybe try to, you know, in tandem with his plan to kind of, you know, stock up the farm system that's been so depleted over the years. It sounds like they're going to pursue this in the international market and maybe kind of take a, a fast track to getting the, the farm system back to where they, they want it to be. I mean, this guy is all about the player development. They even talk about this in the, in the Nightingale story about the fact that, you know, they've created the, the Tigers way of playing baseball and all of that. Like it just, it's a completely different focus. Now he is so intent on, on building the talent from within now. Yeah. And while they may be able to kind of restock the farm system with a lot of these guys, it's still going to be a number of years before they even get to the major leagues. Uh, I know that, you know, Julio Martinez is one of several Venezuelan prospects that the Tigers have signed in recent years. I, th I want to say that he was signed maybe two or three years ago, and he's like just now getting to the United States to start playing in the minor in the minor league systems here. You know, he's been playing in the, the Venezuelan Summer League or Dominican Summer League, one of those two, over the past you know, two or three years. And so, you know, you're still looking at, you know, maybe three or four years before these guys get to that level. You may not even see him at West Michigan until next season. Hmm. So these guys are, you know, they're signing guys that are 16 years old and you're looking at, you know, close to a decade before some of them even are even getting to getting to the major leagues. So while I don't necessarily know that the Tigers need to spend on some of the top guys, you know, they don't need to go out and get the Yohan Mokadas of the world who are going to cost $20, $30 million. But if you sign a handful of those guys that are in the $1 to $2 million range, I think you're doing, you know, yourself a big service. Uh, and I just found Patrick's article here. So here are the teams that are out of the running for a lot of these guys now. You have the Angels, the Red Sox, the Diamondbacks, the Yankees, the Rays, the Dodgers, the Royals, the Cubs, the Giants, and the Blue Jays. Those are a lot of big market teams yeah. that aren't really going to be in the running for a lot of these top free agents so the tigers could do some serious damage here and you just named off what 10 teams 10 teams wow wow the only real kind of threat that we've seen that's not on this list i think is the atlanta braves who hmm. are apparently poised to do a lot of spending here um but yeah that's one team not you know dodgers cubs giants red sox yankees wow all those teams out of the running for these guys well, I, I've said it before. I'll say it again. The future looks very bright. I, I really like the, the new approach that Alavila is taking. 
like you said, it may take years before we begin to see, you know, the fruit of this really begin to, to blossom, um, you know, but even the steps that he's taking right now, just in terms of, you know, signing players to more, I think, team-friendly contracts, you know, he's not outside of someone like Zimmerman getting multiple years, you know, even Justin Upton has his own opt-out. A lot of these players have opt-outs and team options, and it's just, it's a very interesting approach that, that, uh, Avila is taking to architecting this thing for the future, and I'm very, very excited about it. Honestly, I think the most telling contract of the offseason was only signing J.D. Martinez two years. That was huge. He kind of it's almost almost seems like he expressed a little bit of restraint with that. And I know that Martinez had his own race for only signing for two years, but, um, you know, kind of only limiting the Tigers to two years of him and seeing kind of what plays out over the next couple seasons, I think it really kind of shows just kind of the the approach that they're going to be taking under Avila and, you know, what they want the future to hold. All right. That seems like a good place to wrap it up for this segment because we have so many listener questions to get to in the next segment. So when we come back from the break, it's into the mob scene at home. Speaking hypothetically, nothing means anything. I'll tell you what that means when we get back. Swinging a fly ball to left field. This one's deep. Going back. Gentry at the fence. It's gone! Wow. It's gone! A walk-off grand slam in the bottom of the ninth for Jose Davis! Incredible! Around third, into the mob scene at home! And into the mob scene at home we go. This is the portion of the show where we take listener questions. You can get us at all the usual places. You can find us, of course, at the website, blushyboys.com, and leave your questions for us there. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at hookslidebyb. Rob is at bybrob. Or you can send us an email at bybtigers at gmail.com. We got a, just a slew of questions to get through here, Rob, and it seems like there's a, a general theme, which is we're just going to be spe- speaking hypothetically and a lot of what-ifs going on here for a lot of these questions. So... Speaking hypothetically, this doesn't really mean anything. Nothing does. But let's get to it. Brett Orange begins with, if you could hypothetically trade Michael Fulmer for a guarantee that Anibal Sanchez stays healthy for all of 2016, would you do it? No, this not sounds, at all. I mean, this sounds like a Faustian deal, like a deal with the devil. A little bit, but no, I wouldn't do that because, you know, just because Anibal Sanchez is healthy doesn't mean he's good. Just because <laughs> Anibal Sanchez is healthy and good doesn't mean the Tigers win the World Series. So I wouldn't. I, I would trade Michael Formerl for a guaranteed 2016 World Series victory, <laughs> not for a healthy Anibal Sanchez. Sorry, Anibal. Uh, okay. So I mean, so you're saying, or are you saying that you think Michael Fulmer potentially has more value long term than Sanchez? Yeah. I mean, you have what potentially even seven years of you know six plus years of michael fulmer and as opposed to just two of anibal sanchez i think we've reached a point now that sanchez's option for 2018 probably won't be picked up so you have two more years of sanchez versus six or seven years of fulmer and i think that he's going to outweigh that yeah i don't think i would make that trade either i I know it's yeah, this is purely hypothetical. Obviously, that's a weird, weird trade proposition. <laughs> it's getting. He also says nothing about 2017. You know, maybe Sanchez's arm falls off in 2017. I th- I think that's kind of the implied trade-off. You know, you're selling your soul to the devil here for for something in the immediate future, but giving up the long term. I might trade Michael Fulmer for a guarantee that Miguel Cabrera hit. You know, hits like continues to be at prime uh, form for the rest of his contract. But if you're talking just about a, a one year. 
for Sanchez to stay healthy for the whole season? No, there's. I I know I said earlier in the show that Sanchez is kind of key to the whole thing, you know, and and he kind of is, but yeah, I think he is. But at the same time, it's not like if he if he goes off and his arm blows up and whatever, you could always bring Michael Fulmer up to replace him. Yeah, right? maybe Michael Fulmer is more valuable than Abel right. Sanchez this year. We don't know. Right. Maybe we should just do that now and get it over with. All right. Mr. Sunshine says, on a scale from this is fine to doom, how worried are you that we will be without Sanchez, V-Mart, and Mabin for long stretches of the season? I mean, I don't know exactly how you'd scale like in the middle of that, but we're already going to be out of Mabin for uh, – we're already going to be without Mabin for a little while, even if it is just a couple of weeks to start the season. And that doesn't doesn't necessarily bode well for uh, the rest of the year. I imagine that Sanchez will miss some time at some point. You know, it's tough to keep a pitcher healthy for 30 to 33 starts. Uh, V-Mart, we'll see. But, you know, with, with Mabin already on the shelf a little bit, I mean, you're already kind of part way there. Uh, we, we had that uh, quote that I, I pulled out several months ago, I think, the one that you know talked about how most teams, I think 50% of teams, will be without at least one member of their starting rotation uh, or will lose a member of the starting rotation to serious injury at some point in the year. And the, the Tigers have been somewhat fortunate in years past that we haven't had to deal with that. 2013 is, a, is a, one of those years that stands out. Like nobody really got hurt for a very long time. So I, I just sort of like at this point in the in the build up to the regular season, we're in, we're in spring training. I kind of have to have, you know, pretty soon I'm going to have to have that talk with myself in the mirror, you know, and remind myself that, yes, some of these guys are going to get hurt. Uh, this is, you know, the the core of this team is kind of getting older. Sanchez is not a spring chicken anymore. V-Mart is a couple years older than Jesus at this point. Uh, Miguel Cabrera is is older as well. So at some point, you kind of have to just like come to grips with the fact that, yes, V-Mart will probably be on the DL at some point this year. Miguel Cabrera might see four to six weeks because he, you know, whatever, pulls a hamstring or something like Victor Martinez just did. These things are really probably going to happen. Now, does that lead me to doom? No, because I, I still think the team has a little bit more depth this year. I think they can survive some of that. So that's that's kind of a long way to say. I don't know where the middle of that scale is either. Dan Ross 70 says, How long before the Tigers and or the rest of MLB start using hyperbaric oxygen therapy to help pitchers' arms recover from the strain of pitching? Okay, so for those that don't know, hyperbaric oxygen therapy... Uh, basically what you do is you climb in like this sleeping bag looking thing. They pump it full of, uh, either just regular air or oxygen. I think it's just regular like air. Um, but basically they pump you up to like three or four times the usual atmospheric pressure and so that your ears pop a little bit. Um, but what it's basically designed to do is to kind of overload your, uh, you overload your blood, your bloodstream, your red blood cells with oxygen to help promote healing. Uh, you stay in there for like an hour or two and then you come out. Um, the, the thing is, I think that teams are already doing some, some of this, uh, I've worked with, you know, athletes who have done this in the past, uh, when I was, um, you know, working at a sports academy for a few months. Um, and so I imagine the MLB teams already have access to some of this stuff. The research on it is kind of mixed. I know that Dan Ross said on the site that it seemed to, to work for him for whatever injury he was recovering from, but the long-term research on it hasn't really shown I think much conclusive evidence so far. So I, I imagine that teams are already doing some of this. They already have, you know, they're spending money left and right on just about anything they can to kind of try to gain an edge. And so if one MLB team is using this, I imagine the other 29 are as well. 
Yeah, and the thing is, it's it's not just the uh, hyperbaric oxygen chambers that do this. There's other ways of um, kind of loading the, the, the blood with extra oxygen. I know like one of the very, very simple ways is to simply drink uh, water that has been put through the reverse osmosis purification process so the the water ends up like super loaded with with oxygen you could do stuff with your your own blood like they sell machines where you can kind of like withdraw blood and then have it oxygenated by this machine and then re-inject it there's i mean if if people are really into this if pitchers you know really felt like this was a big thing they could be doing some of this stuff on their own and maybe they are i don't really know but um yeah i i have no idea what the rest of mlb is going to start doing with with some of this stuff i know that some guys are even i haven't seen this so much in, in baseball but i know that like some football players and whatnot will almost do the reverse and that they're you know their actual bed at night they're sleeping in like a hypobaric oxygen uh area and basically their you know their bed is like they're you know a mile above sea level basically mm-hmm. and so the thinner air there kind of helps uh you know, increase the number of red blood cells in their system because the body needs to kind of compensate for that lack of oxygen. And so that helps them, you know, gain a little bit of a competitive edge. Um, I don't necessarily know how that would matter as much in football in that you're not necessarily exerting yourself quite so much as in like, you know, a different sport like uh, like football or basketball. Um, but, you know, maybe they're doing some of that too. All right, D-Town27 asks, assuming Holiday is traded or lost on waivers, how do you feel about the third string catcher? Who is he, and what is the likelihood he's catching Major League games? I don't necessarily know who the Tigers' third string catcher is right now. I know the guys we've seen in camp so far, uh, Miguel Gonzalez and Austin Green are the two names that seem like they would be first in line to see any reps should Holiday not be with the organization. Um, Gonzalez, I think, is more of an offensive-minded guy, and he's had a little bit of MLB experience in the past, whereas Green is definitely more of a, a defensive-minded catcher who has only topped out a double-A so far, but he's only like 24 or 25. Um, I imagine that you know the odds are good that one of them sees some major league time this year just because catchers get beat up so badly behind the plate and i imagine that one of one of McCann or Saltonomachia will end up on the disabled list at some point that's just kind of probability in today's game um but i don't think we're going to get much out of them other than generic backup catcher stats uh i saw a little bit of uh, Miguel Gonzalez uh just yesterday day before it's, it's last couple games anyway uh in fact it was just I think it was just yesterday that he he threw out a runner trying to steal second and then like the very next batter, you know, walked or something and he picked him off. The the catcher picked off the guy at first base. So like bang, bang, he got whoever was pitching got himself into this problem and getting base runners on and the catcher, Miguel, Miguel Gonzalez, just took care of both of those runners for him. It was kind of cool. And I went, wow, who is this guy? I don't remember really hearing a whole lot about him. So that was kind of a, a fun thing to watch, but that's a really small sample size to be like, wow, he's the guy. He's awesome. Let him be the third string catcher. I mean, if we were doing that, Brian Holiday starting catcher. So yeah, see, that's, that's why the small samples just don't work, but that's, that's all I really know about what we've got in the, in the system is this, like these two plays that I saw Miguel Gonzalez play. I know Cade Civic cause he was at West Michigan, but he's nowhere near ready to, to step up and, and fill a third string role. So that's, that's the little information that I have for you. Devon Miller asks, Tigers begin the season in Miami. Do you think Daniel Norris should pitch game two? He can hit. See, this is the same thing we were just talking about in the last question with, you know, small sample sizes being <laughs> a little bit of a red herring. You know, he hit the one home run, but he went on the disabled list right after that. 
You know, every if he's going to go on the disabled list every, every time he swings a bat, the Tigers don't want him hitting at all, even if he is hitting home runs. So, uh, you know, let Jordan Zimmerman go up there and ground out twice and toss six inning before turning it over to the bullpen for a win. Jordan Zimmerman was in the National League. I would have to imagine that maybe he can hit, too, although I haven't looked at the stats. But, I mean, the argument seems sound. You know, Daniel Norris got, like, what, two, three at-bats last year, and I know he hit a home run, but... They're also playing... No, he only had the one at-bat, and he... Just one? Hit a, uh, yeah, and he hit a home run, which was cool, but they're also playing in Miami and not in Wrigley Field where the wind is blowing out. So he's not going to hit a home run. Good point. And I'm not really sure how well he can even hit outside of. I mean, how long did it take Justin Verlander to finally get his first base hit? And then he wasn't got, that like a wasn't that like a decade? It was forever because it just happened. It was 2013, I think, that he finally got his first major league hit, and then he got one immediately in the at bat after that. He got like hits. You know, one you know who he got that first hit off of? Cashner, wasn't it? No, it oh, it may have been, but he got one of his hits off of Royal starter Ian Kennedy. Are you kidding? Huh. Abolish the DH. Yes, yes. Let's go back to pitchers hitting. And we saw, you know, we saw Max Scherzer hit a double. In, I think it was 2014. We saw Anibal Sanchez ripped a double against the Dodgers that year. You know, heck, any of these guys probably can hit. So, no, let's let's let Norris wait. I want to see. Um, I want to see Justin Verlander. He's going to get his at bats in Game One, right? He's going to get him against Jose Fernandez. Just don't let him swing. Oh, oh man! Don't don't you know what Verlander? Keep the bat on your shoulder, bro bunt just bunt no don't bunt don't bunt he'll break a finger or something oh, you're right you're right don't just bunt leave I, it there stand <laughs> like you remember that i don't know if you ever saw that movie it might have been you might have been a little old for this rookie of the year oh, where yes. the kid like breaks his arm and oh, yep yes. remember how the first time he goes up to the plate he's standing in like the back corner of the batter's box uh-huh. <laughs> that's what i want justin verlander to do against jose fernandez oh, just God. give up there can be like that kid on my baseball team that i coached a couple years ago the kid couldn't hit to save his life and so we literally just told him he like just go up to the, in the batter's box and just hold the bat out over the plate and if you can somehow make it make contact not not square to bunt because the same reason you'll get hit in the freaking head and die just hold the bat out and hope to make contact oh well it's it's one spot in the order so bummer for verlander though man it's, it's one it's one game too so it's just one game yeah We'll have to rely on people like I don't know JD Martinez to do the hitting. Oh, okay. we have a Miguel, we have the Miguel Cabrera guy. He seems all right. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. Just you know, one of those guys will have to do the hitting. We'll uh, not worry too much about the pitcher spot. He's used to swinging in Miami too. He'll be fine. That's right. <laughs> Tim Babamute says, "How many consecutive years of last place would you deem worth it for a w, uh, World Series championship this year?" Man, the, the, the Faustian bargains that, that we're considering here. Mm, that's kind of a tough one. So if you could be guaranteed the Tigers win the World Series in 2016, what's like the maximum number of, would you put up with five years, the next five years after that being last place? I mean, I think so. I've never seen them win a World Series, so I, I'd have to say at least five, right? I mean, they kind of sucked for my entire childhood. I was going to say, the... the, the, the uh, the, the implication here that or the unspoken problem with this question is the fact that we have watched them suck and be in last place year after year after year before they started to get good again. So it's kind of like I think the baseball gods kind of already owe it to us. We've already paid the dues on that one. So I'm going to go ahead and, you know, flip the bird to the baseball gods and say, screw you. We're not giving you any more last place years. Give us the damn World Series. 
2016 is the year it's going to happen. But to answer that question, I yeah, maybe a year because a team that ends up in last place is not any fun to watch at all. So no. Uh, well, there was two questions here I had from D Town 27. Uh, where do you see the Tigers bullpen ranking among AL teams? Um, I don't know where they're going to rank among AL teams, but if they're, you know, let's say seventh, let's say just above league average, that's a massive improvement from the last, what, five, six years that they've been down. I mean, they haven't had an above average bullpen in terms of ERA since 2006. It's It's been a a decade since they've been in the top half of the American League. Um, And I think they have the the staff to do it. I don't think they're going to be a top bullpen by any means, but they they have the, the guys to finish in the top half, maybe. I don't really, yeah, I, I think I see them kind of ranking in that, you know, middle of the pack, maybe slightly above. Um, I, I don't really know because it's, I, I found out that I really know nothing about bullpens. I've thought all this time that Kansas City had the absolute best bullpen, and by some measures they do, but I went and looked at 2015, just the AL teams, and I ranked it by RE24, which is that one stat that I really liked, shows, you know, the number of expected runs that a bullpen prevented. You know who was at the top of that list? It was the Cleveland Indians. So I suppose that makes sense because we were just talking about how, like, the Royals, when they run their bullpen out, it's usually clean innings. You know, those guys go out there with zero base runners and just kind of mouth through everybody. And so, it's yeah, it makes sense that the Cleveland Indians would have more opportunities with more base runners to then rack up more RE24 points. Uh, But I was just kind of surprised by that. I'm like, I didn't really think of the Indians' bullpen as being, like, super great. I mean, they have a few good arms. I know Cody Allen's a pretty good closer for them. Um, you know, they have one or two other decent arms in that pen. But yeah, I mean, they're. I mean, they may end up being kind of a top bullpen this year. I know that a lot of te- a lot of uh, you know, kind of experts are really really high on their entire pitching staff, not just the starters. Uh, so we'll see how they fare this year. I still think that, you know, if RE twenty four, like you said, can kind of be manipulated uh, a little bit based on when relievers are coming in. So. I think that if you take them as a full unit, I'd still take Kansas City's above Cleveland's. It just kind of like when I saw that, I went, oh, well, I guess the question that, you know, we were asked here is where do you rank them among AL teams? And I thought, shoot, I don't even know where I rank them among the AL Central teams. If, you know, Kansas City and Cleveland are already like at the top, I'm going to go ahead and say the Tigers bullpen should be better than the Twins and should be better than the White Sox. But even within the Central, they may only have like a middle of the pack bullpen but that's that's okay they're, i think they're going to compensate for that in the starting rotation and the offense that's you don't need to have kansas city's bullpen when you have things that kansas city can't do which is hit a lot of home runs so that's my answer to that uh from twitter justin hines at dc enigma says which former tigers player do you think would actually help the team the most if they were suddenly in their prime and available which kind of piggybacks with the question we got from jay winkler who is at jman077 who said which Hall of Fame snubbed former Tiger would fit under the current roster the best? Basically the same question. If you had to pick a former Tiger, they're in their prime, they can play, who who do you pick? I mean, that's kind of a tough one. I get I mean, I guess I'd kinda of have to say Ty Cobb, because the Tigers could use a little bit of an upgrade in center field. Um <laughs> but you know, maybe you go with a guy like, you know, John Hiller or nineteen eighty four Willie Hernandez to stabilize the back of the bullpen too. I don't know. I, if I had to pick one, I'd say Cobb just because of the, you know, the massive upgrade he provides over, over Anthony Ghost and Cameron Maven. 
Yeah, that's that's a part of the equation you have to really think through is like, where do they need the help? You wouldn't want to be like, oh, I would take Norm Cash, you know, because he was an amazing hitter. Well, you've already got Miguel Cabrera at first base. So same thing with Hank Greenberg. Right. Uh, Even Charlie Geringer. I mean, you already have Ian Kinsler right there. So what do you do? Um, Maybe you take Tram over Jose Iglesias, but still, Iggy's fun. I mean, yeah, a, a Trammell would definitely be an upgrade, but I like Iggy. Okay, but maybe we could use no, no. I wouldn't even necessarily take Castellanos out. It's not the, the Tigers haven't necessarily had like super great third baseman through the years. I mean, George I mean, Kell yeah, stands yeah, out, but Kell's kind of the one one guy that comes to mind. But no, they haven't really had a huge. You know, Travis Fryman was good for a little while, but he's I mean, still... do you take Al Kaline over J.D. Martinez in right field? I mean, you could. Well, and then you wouldn't even move Martinez left because you got Justin Upton there. Here's it's nice having this problem, isn't it? Here's. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what you do. You take, um, yeah, and I'll, I'll sacrifice Pelfrey. As much as I like Pelfrey, you take Pelfrey out of the rotation and replace him with 1968 Mickey Lolich. Now you've got yourself another lefty starter and just a, a dominant pitcher. I, I think that's what I would do. Honestly, you know who I would replace Pelfrey with? Who? Max Scherzer. That's boring, though. He's like actually a current player. So, he's a former Tiger. Oh, true. I mean, he's I guess. damn good. Ugh, what a yawn. Man, I don't know. All right. Last couple questions. I came up with these. So, uh, actually, this, this came from listening to the latest episode of the Podcastianos, which I do every week because it's a fun podcast. And they were talking about uh, what – two questions. What baseball person or personality would you most want to go and see a game with? And then the, the follow-up is what non-baseball – person would you want to go in and see a game just go to the game sit in the seats take in the whole game who who would you want to let's start with what baseball person see that's a tough one because i mean you could go with someone fun like rod allen or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know like bartolo cologne seems like it would be <laughs> kind of a riot there um but you could also you know just go to a game with someone like Jim Leland, um, you know, you could hear Leland, you know, talk about all the stories he had with players over the years um, or, you know, a, a past great, like someone like Ken Griffey Jr. or something who would just point out all these different things that you would have never even, you know, kind of dreamt of um, on, you know, with a during a game and like all these different situations and things that the players are thinking about and whatnot. Um does this person have to be alive or can they be dead too? Well, I mean, let's open it up. If you could, you know, somebody back from somebody dead. Sure. Mm, well, he's not dead, but I'd say Willie Mays. I think you get kind of all of that hmm. with him. Plus That's, he's Willie Mays. Yeah. See, and I, I, I immediately leaned towards manager types uh, just because I would want to hear, you know, I would want to hear them talk to me about the strategy, what's going through the manager's head right now for all aspects of the game. You could get, you know, a Rod Allen can tell you a lot about what the pitcher is going to do or what the hitter is going to do, that kind of thing. But I think if you got, you know, a, man, a Jim Leland would be perfect. Um, I don't know how good of a conversational partner he'd be for the game. He'd probably just want to smoke and tell you to shut up, you know, just eat, eat his potato salad, you know. Uh, but somebody like that would be really fun. If, if, if it could be somebody who's dead, I would go Sparky Anderson, you know that he'd be much more fun to converse with and could tell you all the little ins and outs of the strategy would be, that would be really cool. So what, um, <laughs> just not Craig Monroe would be my, my one stipulation, not Craig Monroe. What non-baseball person would you go to a game with? Mm, that's a tough one. That That's such a broad question. Do you have one in mind? Yeah, actually I, I kind of thought about it and I'm like, okay, who would you, you know, 
it just could be somebody fun to hang out with, you know, that enjoys the game or whatever. And then I, I realized Billy Crystal, you know, one of the most entertaining storyteller, comedian, you know, and this guy loves baseball, just eats it up, has loved it for so long. He, you know, he's worked it into his books, into his movies, this kind of thing. I thought, oh, that would be so awesome. And now I kind of actually like really want that to happen. I would love to go to a game with Billy Crystal. See, I kind of thought about that as well. Um, the guy that came to mind for me was uh, uh, J.K. Simmons, an actor who you know oh, appears yeah. on Tigers broadcast every year. Um, That's right. You know, anytime they're out in L.A., like, he's really kind of passionate about the team. Um, another guy who I think would be great would be uh, Paul Rudd, who's a Royals fan, um, huh. but you know, kind of a funny actor. Him and Rob Riggle are both both uh, big Royals fans, and so I think they bring a, a bit of a comedic element to it too. And so I think that that'd be kind of a fun thing. But, yeah, I guess I kind of gravitate again towards towards actor because, um, uh, you know, obviously they're a little bit more famous. So they come to mind quicker, um, but they're also just a little bit funnier and they seem like they'd be you know fun to watch a game with. Right. Easier to talk to, I think. Uh, I'm debating whether I want to ask this last question or save it for the very, very end of the sign. You know, what? I'll do both. I'll do both. I'll ask you the question and then I will uh, sign off with this question. Let, let our listeners kind of answer back. If you could take a time machine, and I'm talking it's a single-use time machine. You get it for 24 hours. Once you're done, you're done. If you could take that time machine back to any point in baseball history just for one day, what event and or game would you want to go and see? And you got to think like broadly here. This could be a famous game, but it could also be, you know, you want to go and see, um, I don't know, like... Uh, the invention of the game basically you know or some kind of event like that mm. there are a couple things that come to mind quickly a funny one would be like 10 cent beer night some of those ridiculous you know things that have happened in the past that you just want to see kind of the spectacle of it um i guess kind of a broader event would be jackie robinson's rookie season hmm. just to see kind of the the mayhem that ensued that ensued from that and what exactly he kind of had to go through. But if you had um, to pick one day, would you like, would you want to see his debut game or would you like want to see the game that he stole home? Probably the one that he stole home. Yeah. Cause I mean, I feel like you would get a lot of that same stuff in his debut game that you got in some of the other ones. Um, if we're going tiger specific, uh, which world series was it that they won on a walkoff? Was it 35 or 45? Hmm. I should know I that, was, but I don't. I think it was 35, because it was Mickey Cochran, right? Boy, now I need to go check my research book. I think I think it was 1935 that they won on a walk-off. So, Tiger-specific game, that one would be it. Hmm. I would want to go back and see... Uh, there's a couple of games that are, like, non-Tigers related. I would want to go back and see, like, when Eddie Geidel got his first at-bat, the midget that, that Bill Veck ran out there just for pure entertainment purposes. Just, Wasn't Bill Veck... The one responsible for ten cent beer night too. I think so. Now that you mention it, I think he was. Yes. So that's just one of those kind of like you know freak show kind of things that would be kind of fun to maybe say, yeah, I actually saw that happen. Uh, you know, and I'd like to maybe see, um, you know, uh, Roger Maris break Babe Ruth's home run record. You know, that that game, that kind of thing would be fun. But then I was thinking like, okay, Tiger specific. There's there, obviously there's a very broad and rich history here. Which event would I want to go back and see now as an adult and I almost said the 84 World Series, you know, even though I experienced it as a kid, it was a kid, you know, so the memory's kind of fuzzy. I'd like to kind of maybe appreciate it. But then I thought, nope, 1968, I would want to go back and see Game 7 of the World Series. And the fact that they not only came back, I think they came back from three games to one to win that World Series, but that they, they, did. That they beat Bob freaking Gibson in Game 7. 
and Mickey Lolich pitched the entire game, just pitched a masterpiece, and they actually got to Bob Gibson and beat him. Um, yeah, I would I would love to be in the stands for that game. I imagine that's got to be on YouTube somewhere or something like that. Yeah, I think the game is. I had it on DVD at one point. I had the whole series on DVD at one point. Um, I'd have to go dig those up again. But just to be there, like to experience the ballpark uh, in – 1968 i think guys you know dudes used to wear they weren't dudes back then they used to wear suit coats and ties and hats and when i watch the old video footage there's like actually people in the in the stand smoking pipes and stuff it's really it's weird so anyway i'll come back to that question at the end of the show give our listeners a chance to uh have a go at it and uh when we get back from the break we'll wrap up the show with the seventh inning kvetch goose gossage is a f-ing mother f-ing f-ing I'll tell you what that means when we get back. Three now. Here's the 2-2. Oh, boy. Curveball grabbed the outside corner. Victor not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh, and Victor got tossed. And welcome back from the break, and we're into our final segment, the seventh inning Kvetch. I, I like, Rob, the fact that the last couple of segments, uh, seventh inning Kvetch segments, the last couple of shows, we've actually been using this segment for its intended purpose, which is to kind of gripe and moan and Kvetch a little bit about some things. And today, uh, I wanted to talk about this article that, that popped up in my news feed. I think it was on Twitter uh, that I saw the link to the article. It was uh, Peter Haley at the CSN Mid-Atlantic. Um, did a ranking of all Major League Baseball logos, at least insofar as they appear on hats, on the team's hats. And so I went through this uh, this ranking. I don't know if you got a chance to look at the, the hats or not, but um, I thought this was just a lot of bullcrap, the, the, the way he ranked these, because <laughs> let's just start with the fact that I'll, I'll get to the good stuff. The Tigers only ranked 16, right in the middle of the pack. Tigers were only 16th out of 30 teams, and I happen to, of course I'm biased, but I think the Tigers have one of the classiest, you know, most historical logos in the game of baseball. And they only made it to number 16. But he ranked the Red Sox number 10 because they were, quote unquote, timeless. Tell me, how, how are these two logos even different? Really? The D and the B. How are they different? I, I'm just going to ask you what is even on the Red Sox hat. Is it the B or is it the little Red Sock logo? No, it's just a, just a little red B. Hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's tough to kind of separate those. I mean, there are a lot of teams that have kind of the, you know, single letter, uh, the single letter logo on their hat. Uh, I know that you had mentioned that the Reds were 28th and they just have a C on their hat. You know, yeah. the Phillies, the Pirates both have P's uh, on their hats. Um, and then I know you get teams like the New York Yankees with an interlocking N and Y. Um, so I don't necessarily like I know this is kind of blasphemy, but I don't necessarily know that I would put the Tigers logo at least the one on their hat as number one. I think the full uniform is, you know, definitely one of the one of the top ones in the majors. But the the logo itself, I think, is a little, you know, is if you're looking just at the hat, it is a little bit tame. Um, you know, some people prefer the timeless look. I just think that you kind of have to group all of those traditional logos, those single letter logos, together if you're going to do that. Yeah, it seems to make the most sense to me. And maybe, you know, some of these other ones are, I mean, you talk about the Cincinnati Reds. They were ranked number 28, and he complained because he's a, the C looked too much like an O. It's too closed off. You know, It looks like ones. a it looks like a football. It doesn't look like an O. Oh, it, yeah, I mean. but it's An O is round. And I, I don't know, I just, I really like that logo. And again, the Reds are one of the historic teams. It's just kind of been that way. 
you know, fine. You want to pick on the Cleveland Indians because of the C on their head. It's just a boring C. Fine. It's not even like, you know, old English font like the D in Detroit. It's not, you know, ornamented like the B in the Boston hat. Um, but it was just stupid to me that he, he ranked the Reds 28 because the C looks too much like an O. And then went ahead and ranked the Twins number nine because he liked the way the C and the T on their hat kind of worked together. I'm looking at it going, it's the exact same C. It is the exact same like font and everything. It's closed off and you dinged the Reds for it, but you, you gave the freaking Twins props. That, I, you know, the Twins is actually my, my least favorite hat for that very reason. Because What's the C? C it. Why is there a C in the Twins logo? That's what I don't get. Exactly. It, it stands for the Twin Cities. But who knows that? That's not part of their team name. Yeah, it makes no sense. I mean, that's why they're called the Twins. because It's like they stole a Reds cap and drew a T on top of it. (laughs) Or or whatever's on there. They would do that, wouldn't they? (laughs) The stupid Twins and their stupid metronome that's not there anymore. They just stole the Reds baseball hats and carved a little T on the top. It's stupid. Well, Uh, When I I was looking at this article, I glanced at this for about two seconds. mm -hmm. Um, What I was looking for is I was looking for where the Tigers were. Mm -hmm. I also looked to see where the Yankees were because I knew that they would probably be near the top. And then I wanted to see, because this was from CSN Mid-Atlantic, I wanted to see where he ranked the Nationals and O's. And the Nationals logo is crap because it looks like Walgreens. Yes. It's indistinguishable. And And I have one of their hats. I'm staring at it right now. It looks almost exactly like Walgreens. So I'm not necessarily a fan of that one. Now, the Orioles, I am actually a big fan of, the, that they've gone back to the kind of that retro Oriole bird. Uh, I am a big fan of that logo, and I think that, you know, maybe they weren't the, what were they, like second or third or something like that? Yeah, the Orioles were, were second. The top three were the Blue Jays, the Orioles, and the Yankees. Yeah, the Blue Jays won. I, I don't get what the heck he's thinking with that. Um, but I think the Orioles, you know, that is kind of a, I would rank that one top five. I'd you say know, I really like that. I really like the black and the orange, the way those colors play together. So I, I I agree. I would put them way near the top. Do you remember what the Orioles logo was before they went back to the bird? I am like, really yeah, it was kind of like a really boring looking Oriole thing, like a side view of a bird. Oh, that's right. It that's was like right. you look up Oriole in an encyclopedia and that's the picture you get. That's right. Kind of like what the Cardinals have with their. That was definitely bottom five. Wow. Yeah, I completely forgot about that. Now I got to get up my old baseball cards and Honestly, if I'm going to pick a team for number 1, mm-hmm. my top hat I would say is the Dodgers. Really? Light blue, the light blue, the interlocking LA. I think that's a classic logo. Yeah. I, I would pick that one for top hat. Now, how much does color play into that for you though? Oh, a bit. Yeah. Cuz I think I, that's a role. I I have found the same thing. I like to collect hats, uh, you know, I I love the um what I'm wearing now, this uh, the 47 brand. I love these hats. And when I go out and pick other team hats that I want to wear around, it's um, almost you know entirely driven by what the color is. I, I like a good color. you know. Um, I will wear an Oakland A's hat because I like that color of green. I will wear the Blue Jays hat because that's a nice blue. And I hate to say it, but the Kansas City Royals have a really nice hat. They do. It's it's a cool, they do the Royal they Blue do. Nice. And what I like, what they I like their spring training one where they have kind of the crown on it. Do they? I didn't even or, see that. They, they, yeah, they put a crown on that. I don't know if it's because they're the Royals, because they just won the World Series. But I thought that that was a nice touch. That's. I think that would be. I think that would be kind of cool if they wore a hat with a crown on it this year because they're defending champions. I think that'd be a nice touch. It's funny you should say that because it's exactly what this guy said in the article ranking the hat. Not that the. He didn't. I don't think he even knew about the spring training hats, but he said they were ranked a little bit lower and said, "Hey, they need something to kind of spice this up. Maybe a crown, you know, on the K or something." And so it's. I he probably didn't even know that they're doing that for spring training. That's that's funny. 
But yeah, it was just, uh, I know he's just having fun with it, and it's fun to kind of get mad at the way he ranked them. But I was like, man, the Phillies got ranked number 20 because their logo, it's just that kind of soft cursive, you know, P on the hat. And he kind of dinged them and said it doesn't stand out at all. And then, yeah, the Nationals, the Nationals have the exact basic same font, script, whatever, and they got ranked number seven because he called well, it a, an, a tremendous and easy logo. Of course he's going to put both the top two teams, uh, both the teams in his region in the top ten. Uh, and then you get division rivals like the Phillies down way low, the Marlins division rival down way low. Um, you know, I don't necessarily know why he's given so many props to the Yankees and Blue Jays, but hey, you know, whatever. I get the Blue Jays a little bit because it's kind of a complicated, fun logo. It's got the little red maple leaf on it. You know, the the bird is nice. Uh, the blue is nice. But the Yankees, come on. It's just an interlocking N and Y. It's very different. Uh, not different at all, I should say, from like the New York Mets. They have interlocking N, Y, and M. And he just pissed all over them for having that logo. So uh, if you get a chance, go check out the article. Um, you already said you would take the Orioles probably first. No, the Dodgers first. Or the Dodgers, sorry, Orioles, sorry. The yes. Orioles in the top five. Okay, and I'm not really sure. I might take Kansas City. I might even take Cincinnati. Again, it's largely based on color. I like that red cap, so I, I might pick one of those for my top. I do. This is also kind of weird. I do kind of like the White Sox one. It's very simple, kind of the diagonal socks. I know that you, you know, obviously the team is bleh, but yeah, it's really it's kind of hard. It's it's hard to wear a hat for a team that sucks. Yeah. Don't you think? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not just that they suck, it's that they're a divisional rival. I mean, the Cincinnati Reds sucked last year. I would still wear that hat all year mm-hmm. long. I don't care. They're not my rivals. So anyway, moving on to the to the real point of this Kvetch, let's talk about Goose Gossage and what a douche he ended up being. This was like kind of all over the place. I'm not sure even where the where it originated. I know ESPN kind of covered it. But he made some statements about the nerds, and uh, it was kind of a multifaceted rant that he went on, because I know he was all ticked off about Jose Bautista and the bat flips, and he called out Ioannis Cespedes by name. Um, but then he kind of went on this this rant, and I'll quote part of it. He said, this game is becoming a freaking joke because of the nerds who are running it. Uh, he goes on to say, these guys played rotisserie baseball at Harvard or wherever the F they went, and they thought they figured the effing game out. They don't know shit. A bunch of effing nerds running the game. You can't slide into second base. You can't take out the effing catcher because Posey was in the wrong position, et cetera, et cetera. So he's just like really upset with guys that have degrees that are now running the game. You know, I assume he's talking about like, you know, at the GM levels and so forth. Um, golly, geez. <laughs> what is, when are we going to see an end to this whole like us versus them, the nerds versus the old school dudes kind of thing? Are we sure this is Goose Gossage or my Uncle Steve? That's like kind of what it felt like. Because if Goose Gossage is my Uncle Steve, I expect, you know, a check or two in the mail, buddy. Come on. Um, but, yeah. No, I mean, it, it's frustrating. And the thing, I, I actually kind of gl- glossed over Gossage's comments about, you know, sabermetric nerds and whatnot. Because we've heard that so much by now that it's just, you know, it's another old guy ranting on the internet. Um, the part that I actually paid attention to more was Gossage railing on guys like Jose Bautista and Bryce Harper, you know, for quote unquote ruining the game and being a disgrace to baseball and stuff like that, because they're actually, you know, showing emotion during the game, expressing themselves when they hit home runs. Uh, I also find it ironic that a lot of times when these older players, you know, fetch about stuff, you know, you get guys like Gossage and other former pitchers, they don't complain about pitchers 
no. know, showing emotion no. on the mound. They only complain about the hitters watching home runs. And then, you know, old hitters are, you know, yelling about pitchers and whatnot. So, the, you know, that age-old battle still rages on. The question I would have for Goose Gossage after I finished all the expletives um, would be, because, of course, as a Tigers fan, I interpret this very differently. It's Goose Gossage. Goose Gossage was the guy who got on the mound in the fifth game of the 1984 World Series and was told to intentionally walk Kurt Gibson in, the, I think it was the eighth inning of that game, and he refused. He got all cocky about it and said, I can strike him out, and attempted to try a pitch to Gibby, and, of course, Gibson hit a three-run homer, and just absolutely, that was it. That was the nail in the coffin. That was, you know, that was the, that's a great clip on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, you know, you got Sparky Anderson in the dugout yelling, they don't want to walk you. They don't want to walk you. It's a classic for Tigers fans. And so I kind of thought when he was complaining about, you know, Bautista and the bat flips and Cespedes being really kind of too eccentric. And I'm like, go back to that clip, watch Gibson hit the home run. That is one of the most ecstatic celebrations, you know, of a home run. I don't think he bat flipped, but he had his, you know, he was arm pumping and had his hands up in the air the whole time he's around the bases and flipping the helmet the whole thing so it's you kind of want to just go back to Gossage and say so tell me how you feel about that situation let's go ahead and revisit that one that's the whole hilarious thing too is that batters have been doing this for years you know you you look at the guys celebrating I mean remember Gibby's uh, home run when he was with the Dodgers in the yes. 88 World Series he's pumping his fist all the way around the base paths you know guys are jumping up and down and taking forever to get around the base paths after big home runs back then too uh, and so this is nothing new it's just that uh, you know, you get, you know, these young punks that are trying to ruin the game and whatnot. And, you know, I hate to say it, but there's probably a, a tinge of racially charged comments to go along with this, too. Uh, it and, certainly felt like that. He Yeah. And so it it's just tired is what it really is. And, you know, I kind of bring that up because, you know, Bryce Harper uh, had just had an ESPN, the magazine feature written about him and how he's trying to, you know, he'd like to change that type of culture. And he cited a lot of these, you know, guys like Jose Bautista, I don't think he actually mentioned him by name, but, you know, kind of hinted at a lot of these players, especially those of, of Latin upbringing who are a lot more expressive during games and saying that, you know, these guys are, you know, kind of what we should be doing. We should be embracing some of these, you know, some of these guys and trying to be more like the NBA and the NFL where, you know, guys like LeBron and, and whatnot are, are household names and single, you know, single name guys. Like you say LeBron, you know, exactly who you're talking about obviously it's a unique name but at the same time you know you get some of these guys and you know exactly who they're talking about they don't need any introduction whereas in baseball you know guys are really still kind of invisible even though you can see their faces at any point during the game yeah a Bryce Harper I think he wasn't he just on the cover of GQ I want to say he was so Probably. guys guys like him are, are certainly getting more visibility that might become more of a household name but you're right even someone like Miguel Cabrera who's one of the best hitters in baseball is probably not terribly well known outside of Detroit I mean he's well known in this I guess announcers know about him you know baseball people know about him in the game but I don't know if you could go to uh, I don't pick pick a place go to Oakland or Oakland's a bad example but a National League team and their fans and show them a picture of Miguel Cabrera and you know does anybody know who he is outside of Detroit. Well, I think part of the problem here is Major League Baseball itself. You know, they're still focusing so much on appealing to, you know, the teams and the big markets and, you know, touting the Yankees and the Red Sox rivalry. Whereas you get a league like, for instance, the NBA, you know, you don't see them touting, you know, New York and Boston and Los Angeles uh, as their big money games right now. They're marketing their 
you know, they're star players. They're marking LeBron James and Steph Curry and these guys. I mean, I think the, you know, Steph Curry's Golden State team is the one that's on national TV the most this year because they're fun, they're entertaining to watch. And you don't get baseball doing that. They, you know, try to cling so much to these old storied rivalries when, you know, the, I mean, you're getting, you know, just one of the Yankees and Red Sox making the playoffs at this point, whereas you could be, you know, marketing some of the bigger pitching matchups in baseball or, you know, some of the some of the better hitters in baseball and marketing that on your, you know, national TV broadcasts as opposed to some of these kind of tired old matchups. And honestly, Rob, I don't understand what the problem is with the excessive celebrations anyway. I, I really don't understand why that's a problem. Bat flips, why? Who cares? Uh and the Bryce Harper piece that you mentioned, he talked about Jose Fernandez in particular and said, hey, when that guy strikes you out, you know, he'll pump his fist or whatever. He's like, he has no problem showing that. Why shouldn't they? Where? How did it get to that? I don't know. I know it's part of the quote unquote unwritten rules. You know, if you pimp a home run, you're going to get dusted, you know, in your next at bat. But it's like, why? Why should that even be a problem? How is that disrespecting the game to have a little bit of excitement and emotion when you do something awesome? I mean, we go back to even the definition of it. It's a game. It should be fun. But these guys are treating it, you know, like you you swing at the pitch, and if you, even if you hit it or you strike out, you act the exact same the whole way. Never smile. Never have any fun. And it's it's ridiculous. I can only imagine that it's it's a situation that will kind of take care of itself as, you know, younger generations kind of come up and, you know, we're in that, you know there's generations after us i guess that will be even more i guess progressive than us and saying yeah show us the celebrations it's it's cool and the players that are coming up in the next generation should hopefully be kind of the same way so i would imagine give it another 20 years maybe 30 years and we'll start to see more of that it's a long time to wait yeah i mean i'm not going anywhere i don't think so and, th- and then maybe i'll be the asshole old man going what they're doing to the game today with their thing and Maybe. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Keep doing you, Bryce Harper. That's right. You you do you, Bryce. We like it. And challenge guys like Goose Gossage. Should have walked him, Goose. Idiot. All right. That is going to do it for another episode of The Voice of the Turtle. Rob, any last words? Yes. Rank us on iTunes again yes. uh, so that we can beat the podcast Yanos. I want to be <laughs> higher ranked than them. I don't know if there's a ranking of Tigers podcast, but uh, that would be cool. I don't think we're even in the same. Above uh, them. I don't think we're even in direct competition with them, to be honest. I think because no. we're, uh, we're not part of the like they'll show up on the new and upcoming ranks, and that's not us. We're not even in. Yeah. That. Well, the general sport. Yeah, and we're not really going to make it on the general sports ones because you get like ESPN and whatnot. But still, rank us. But yes, give us more rankings than them. That, yeah. That's how we'll gauge it. <laughs> if, if we have like more comments, then we win. If you are listening to us on iTunes, and I can see the numbers, a lot of you are listening on iTunes. Yeah, go to our iTunes page uh, for the Bless You Boys. I think it's still called the Bless You Boys podcast on iTunes, um, but you can search there. And then, yes, I think we've got like three comments right now. We're still ranked as like a four and a half star show, which is cool. Uh, Sweet. Thank you. That's that's awesome. Go give us a little uh, review line in the comment. That always helps push us up, and it's it, that, that would really help our numbers, too. So. Uh, that'd be great. Uh, okay. Remember, we're only one half of this conversation. You're the other half. So leave your comments for us at the website at blessyouboys.com. Find us on Twitter at hookslidebyb or byborob, or you can send us an email, bybtigers at gmail.com. 
So on behalf of Rob Rojacki and cranky old men everywhere, this is Hook Slide saying have a good week and uh, here's your question. Until next time, if you could go back in time just once, just for 24 hours, what baseball event or game would you want to go back and see? Leave it in the comments section and we will see you the next time on The Voice of the Turtle.